0: Well, good evening. Thanks for joining us again tonight. And I'm going to state up front, I don't want you to get scared, but we're going to cover a lot of material tonight. And we're going to do so more in an overview fashion. And so take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 14. We're going to see a series of parables and narrations around the parables that are going to help us here to understand a significant point about your and my discipleship with Jesus Christ. And it's so significant that Jesus just goes one after the other after the other with stories to get the point across. And so let's go ahead and ask the Lord to bless this time, to use it to its full advantage, and that the word of God would not be returning void. Let's pray together and then dive right into Luke chapter 14. Father, this evening I pray that you'd help us to take the material at hand and to use it for uh, its rightful purposes. So we have to understand it rightly. We have to hear it. We have to have hearts that can live it. And then we need to be not just hearers only, but doers. So help us, we pray, to understand this pivotal, um, monumentous, Explanation of what a true disciple is. It is no doubt our task as followers of you to be and not only be, but to reproduce ourselves as followers of you. And so we pray that you would help us to be sober, help us to take these uh, descriptions of what true discipleship is, true follow- followership is, and that we would live it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, we're going to put up on the screen here uh, just a a little outline and descriptor here first of kind of where we're going. And I'm doing this because we are uh, covering several chapters of material tonight, and I thought it might be helpful for you to kind of follow me along as we start to list out uh, the the really the the reason why the the point of each of the parables and how they 're connected, and so we 're going to learn some economic lessons from Jesus tonight, as you see there on your screen and before we dive into the parables, I want to right away set a few observations about these parables first, these parables are set in context, and as Luke. Uh, compiles them for us. We just finished in the beginning of chapter 14 uh, reading about the Pharisees' hollow love and relationship for God. And so we saw that as Jesus was a, a guest at the banquet table. And, uh, and so that is certainly a significant uh, piece of context that Jesus was just describing their hollow love and uh, really, their are non-love for God and for others. We also need to consider together there are thematic and narrative connections, uh, like word choices throughout these uh, parables, some that tie uh, some of the parables together, others that just emphasize the point of the parable in, the, uh, in that context because of word choice and frequency. And so that'll be helpful for us to understand as we rightly look at parables. Another one are uh, stories and parables in general, but stories certainly uh, often employ hyperbole to make a significant point. And so I have on the screen there, think Jack and the beanstalk, right? What's so interesting about a bean? Well, not much, but if you do garden with beans uh, and, and other seeds, you know that beans will tend to sprout up within a few days, especially if you soak them first. Oftentimes, children are encouraged to uh, plant beans to, to watch how things grow because you don't have to sit for a week or two weeks to watch something grow. Beans will sprout up, and they'll get tall in a matter of seconds, it seems. And that's certainly the hyperbolic nature of Jack and the beanstalk. And then there is the story of Jesus's life and it's given in the gospels and it's explained in the epistles and so we understand that there's a progressive revelation Uh, concept that's going on in the New Testament. And John chapters 14 through 16, specifically landing in 16, really help us to understand that Jesus says, there are words that I'm saying right now and words that I ought to say or I, I would say, but that you cannot bear. You cannot understand them, he tells the disciples. But that implies that there is, and he actually states explicitly that he is sending the Holy Spirit so that there will be words to come that are necessary. Words that will be revealed and that are necessary. And so as we understand the parables, we have to understand that the epistles really start to unpack not only Jesus' life, but really some of the meanings of these parables. And it's certainly uh, for us to um, not just uh, to, to decide what, what the epistles say or read into, even from an epistolary standpoint, the parables, because that can certainly be dangerous. But, but basically where it's plain and abundantly clear because of context, because of connections, because of uh, the hyperbolic nature of the parables, uh, where the epistles take that concept and then further explain it, we uh, will rest on those. And before we jump in to verse 25, I want us to understand that there is a funnel that Jesus is essentially doing here for us. Right? Funnels are helpful to kind of catch all, right, and then funnel it really down to specific. And here he's doing that with his audience. And we're going to see that in verse 25. So let's look there. He says, now large crowds were coming or going along with him. Jesus is starting with crowds, and he's going to work his way to disciples, and then he's going to work his way to the apostles, the specific called ones that the church was built on, and, uh, and that's going to be helpful for us as we conclude. So we're going to look at lessons of true discipleship, and that first lesson is uh, the lesson of the cost. So if we're going to uh, take the theme of of the economics, in quotes, lessons from Jesus, we're going to see, first of all, the cost of true discipleship. True disciples pay the cost. And so he's here on verse 25 speaking to a large crowd. He turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and remember we've got hyperbole, and and that's certainly going to be the case here. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. So there's some uh, word frequencies now or phrases, he cannot be my disciple, that are really helping us understand the point. Verse 28, for which one of you, when he builds a tower, does not uh, first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him. So there's a cost there if you can't finish it. Verse 30, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the others is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you, here's another frequent repetition of word can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for, for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So first of all, we see that the cost is all about priority. It's all about priority. Look at verse 26 again. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, hates a strong word. Many, as many of you, maybe as a child, were told that you shouldn't use that word unless you really, really meant it. If anyone hates, and what's astounding here is his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Luke, out of all the synoptics, synoptic, synoptic, sorry, goes through and really. Uh, uh, kind of expounds on the relationships that Jesus is talking about. Um, Father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, even his own life. And we know this is hyperbole because Jesus tells us to love our enemies. Certainly he wants us to love and respect our own parents. This was a key element in the law, hence Deuteronomy chapter 6. This was a key element in the New Testament as, as it's being formed. And so Jesus isn't espousing to, for us to truly hate our parents and our family, family is and often ought to be, the, by, by created design, the most important relationships that we have. So what is Jesus saying? By, via hyper- hyperbole, he's saying, listen, the most important relationships in your life ought to be like hate compared to the cost of following me. In other words, if there's going to be scales... Jesus should always be heavier on the scales. Jesus should always be more important. He should always be the priority. And certainly some of us here have had to actually weigh those scales against our families. I have growing up in in a religious home. I walked away from my religion and I walked to Christ. And that religion was frankly a scapegoat for my family to do all kinds of things that they want to do. But God says don't do. And so I was the black sheep, though I was white in Jesus Christ. My family didn't really appreciate my new viewpoints and my uh, desire to go to a different church. And so I was the black sheep as they were about doing their things. And it did for a while cost me and it does even today. I'm I'm the pastor in our family and it's really not said with pride. It's really said with Kind of like, "Mm, that's interesting. I wonder why he did that kind of a mindset. And that's okay, because Jesus says that if I'm going to have to weigh something against him, he better always be the first and the priority. And many of you have had to do the same thing. We've had even uh, uh, former Jews that have had to do that here in our assembly. And so that is certainly the case. But this was also this, this lingo, hate his own father and mother, was also a very Semitic way of expressing value. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And then the next verse says in Genesis chapter 29 that Leah was hated. Well, Leah wasn't really hated. She was just loved less than Rachel was by Jacob. We know uh, Jacob have I loved, right? But Esau have I hated. Well, that's, that's a Semitic way of saying that Jacob is loved more no doubt. And so we see that that's the case here. So the second thing that shows us the priority of the cost of discipleship is verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross, come after me. The cross was already before Jesus was actually on the cross, because that was not true up until this point in Luke or in any of the gospels. um, The cross was already a picture of, 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 pain and suffering, certainly death, and Jesus is going to reform that picture to make it a picture of self-denial. Paul certainly speaks of that true, that we should take up our cross and follow him. And so following Jesus Christ, a matter of priority. And giving up all, look at verse 33. Now before we get into verse 33, we see here some of the cost motif coming out, right? Verse 28, if you're going to build a tower, that tower, that, that, that building project ought to have some calculations. If, if you can't finish it, you better not start it. You better change that project. The same thing with waging war. The, the, the tremendous cost that is implied there in the considering and the calculating. You can see those frequently used words in verse 28 and verse 31, then in verse 33, again, uh, sandwiched in between these illustrations that that are giving us a a matter of counting the cost, we see there, you cannot be my disciple if you do not give up all. Now remember that frequently used phrase in verse 26 about hating his own family. In verse 27 about following Jesus according to cross-like kind of self-denial. You cannot be my disciple, you cannot be my disciple. You see that there in both of those verses and then again in verse 33, you cannot be my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. So what? Does Jesus want us not to have anything? Of course not. Does Jesus want us to live a monastic lifestyle and forsake all worldly evils of materialism? Of course not. And this this isn't espousing that the physical is evil and that the spiritual is good by no means. We don't have to go that route to understand what Jesus really is saying. He's saying we have exchanged values. We've given up the value of our families compared to Jesus. We've given up the value of our own life compared to Jesus. And we've given up the value of possessions. And that, frankly, is a hard one, isn't it? It's a hard one, certainly for our family. It's a hard one for our own lives. And it, it's tremendously hard to live a life that's not about the things more than it's about Jesus. And that's really what Jesus is talking about. The cost is described in our hymnody. You know, a mighty fortress is our God. I love that line. Let goods and kindred go. Stuff and family <laughs> This mortal life also boy, that sounds like you know Martin Luther has this parable in mind a little bit. It is the forsaking of all for Jesus, one man writes, or retaining all and forsaking Jesus. I like that counterpoint. Uh, it is the forsaking of all for Jesus, or retaining all and forsaking Jesus. It's not that material things are bad. when Jesus blesses us with those things that is good. And we're blessed with those things here. I'm using a screen and a camera and material things to to hopefully uh, minister rightly the word of God to you tonight. And you're using some of those same things to receive it. But the point is, what's more important? What is the priority? And there we see in verse uh, 34, the therefore. Therefore, salt is good, but if Even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? That therefore, this is the point, is what that therefore is there for. It's the point of the illustration of salt, right? True followers of Jesus have their priorities right, which means that they have their distinct purposes right. And if if they're going to have the right purpose in life, they're going to have a right priority of life, and that's Jesus Christ. And if they refuse to calculate and count the costs and pay the costs and make Jesus the most important thing, they are not useful to God, just like salt mixed with sand. You've been to the beach, right? Maybe, hopefully. And you've had... Sandwiches on the beach, a picnic on the beach, hopefully, in your life, and you've had probably a wind gust get some sand on your sandwich, or maybe even dropped or something like that, and, and, and you didn't know it, and you start to bite into the sandwich, and all you can taste is what? You can't taste it but you can feel it the grit of the sand and what you you can't just like pick you know spew it out pick out the grit and put the sandwich back in your mouth i know that's such a youth pastor thing but you can't do that the whole thing is ruined you can't eat it it's useless it's lost its purpose that's the point for either soil or the manure pile according to Jesus's point so jesus says that there is a cost to discipleship There is a cost, but there isn't just a cost. There's also a value that must be considered when we think about true discipleship. True discipleship counts the cost, but it also sees value in one soul. Look at chapter 15 with me. Now, all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. So you see the connection Right. So we have the crowds at the end of verse 14, chapter 14. But now Luke says, now all the tax collectors, he's actually kind of he's actually kind of funneling it in a little bit. He says the tax collectors and the sinners and the Pharisees and the scribes are listening to him and they're hearing how Jesus is talking about the cost and they don't like it. Because they have their own agenda and their own religiosity, which doesn't demand a cost to them. It only actually, it all, only placates to what they want, to their their own priorities. And Jesus says, no, you have to have my priorities, the Father's priorities, to be a true disciple. And discipleship was a, was, a, was a key thing in this context with the Jews and the Pharisees. That's what they did. They had people going around their feet following them. Much like the model that Jesus had with his disciples. And so discipleship wasn't a, a, an empty thing or a vacuous thing here. This is actually a very cultural understanding. A very cultural thing. And the Pharisees and the scribes, what do they do? They begin to grumble. And say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. That's the kind of disciple making he does. He's eating. And eating. With, and receiving sinners. Can you believe it? And so that's the context and the connection from the cost of discipleship to now the value of one soul. So he told them this parable saying, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing, rejoicing, And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, my one sheep, which was lost. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven and over one sinner. One. Who repents than over ninety nine righteous persons who need no repentance. So already we see some frequent usage of words, right? We see one, 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 and then we see joy and rejoicing. And I'll see if we continue that theme. Or what woman, verse eight, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp, and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice! There it is. Wine and rejoice with me, for I have found the coin, the one coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So, obviously, a lot of parallels so far. Let's see if that's true, if we keep on going. And he said, a man had two sons. All right, so now we've got two. That's interesting. The younger of them said to to his father, so we're talking about the one now, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his field to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will give up. And go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the one son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight, I am no longer to to be worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slave, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. Bring out a ring. Put it on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf. Kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead, hyperbole, and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected the command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he, the father, said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. So a lot there, but a lot in common. A lot in common about the true value of one soul. So there's a distinct contrast between the grumbling that Jesus is addressing in verse 1 and verse 2 of the Pharisees and the joy and the rejoicing and the celebration and the dancing and the party of the restoration of one. So we have one sheep, one coin, of one coin, uh, a boy comments, uh, this is relayed, uh, that a boy comments when he heard this in class, this parable, he says, of the woman who's looking for this one coin, what a dumb woman. She spent more on the party than the coin was worth. And that probably is true. But you know what? That's kind of exactly the point. It, it's, not, it's not economics as we understand them. It, it's economics as the sun of God understands them. One man says this, from an economic point of view, the woman's response is folly. The parable is not about economics. However, it's about God's grace, perhaps the folly of God's grace that seeks the lost until they are found and once found celebrates their recovery in abandon. So we see that in one sheep. We see that in one coin. We see that in one son, the lost son. But the one son or the parable of the prodigal son or maybe the forgiving father uh, is not as much about the son as the sons as it is about the one father. The focus is that way, as we see in verse 11, chapter 15. And he said, Jesus said, amen, right off the top the focus is on, the character introduced first, is the father. Oh, and by the way, look at the character that is last. Verse 32, right? But we had to celebrate. Verse 31 says, The father said to him, Son, you've always been with me. We had to celebrate. The father's voice is the last one we hear. He is the, the finished character. He is the one where we learn the lesson of the parable. And so the issue alone uh, in this parable, it's at stake that the son's relation to the father is the issue. Okay, that's the issue alone. That the son's relation or restoration of relationship to the father is the main issue. The father's joy contrasts with the elder brother's anger. Almost kind of like the Pharisees a little bit in, in Jesus telling this par- these set of parables to them. Hey, you should be rejoicing over the recovery. Of individuals, of sinners, right? But no, <laughs> no, not at all. They grumble. That's kind of like the perspective here of the older son. He grumbles because it's all a matter of perspective. The father is elated of the restoration that is taking place, of the restoration that is taking place. You know, God passionately and singular, singularly pursued you. Those of you who have grown up in a Christian home, you're not exempt from this. You're not a Christian because you grew up in a Christian home. You're a Christian if you're a true Christian. If you're a true disciple, it's because God sees the value in one soul. In one soul. In one soul. The value of one soul. There's an undercurrent in the world that only finds value in the identity, in the masses. Gender. Gender. Sexual, relation, uh, racial, scientific, social, educational, political, whatever it is, they, they try to amass the, the group identity around these rallying cries. And my friend, do not get caught up in this kind of thing. It is phony. It is antithetical to God's singular, passionate pursuit of the soul. God cares about the soul, not about an identity in a group so it doesn't matter you know how many people hear the message from a particular pulpit or a radio on a particular sunday god cares and will draw to himself a soul and we know that that's true from the foundation of the world the epistles tell us you in the way god made you is incredibly valuable to God. Mr. Rogers, you know, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, he was a proponent of this reality. There was a young man who was bound in a wheelchair. He was bound so severely with his handicaps that he was bound to an electronic wheelchair. And it, it, he, he had to uh, use uh, very limited motor controls to be able to get around he was going to have a, a major surgery, and and his parents uh, somehow there was some correspondence, and his parents ended up being able to take him to the studios of uh, where they filmed *Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood*. And uh, he comes in. Uh, his the young boy's name is Jeff, and he he came in to the studio, and uh, some of the people were getting Mr. Rogers ready over there, and and Jeff was uh... just said hey you know what uh... some of the the people getting Jeff ready said Jeff you're you're gonna you're gonna go on and you guys just have a conversation and maybe you guys will sing at the end that was the extent of the planning well Jeff was on for ten minutes and you can search that video that unscripted ten minutes and uh... Jeff uh... or or mister Rogers later on uh... was asked how long it took to film that ten minute segment and Mr. Rogers said 10 minutes. They filmed it once. It was unscripted. They talked about Jeff's incredible difficulties. I mean, we're talking about a 10, 11-year-old boy who bound since life, not being able to uh, move in his own ability, but having a, a mind that understood that. And, uh, and so they talked about his difficulties. They talked about what made Jeff happy and sad. And for 10 minutes... As you look at that video, there's no one in the world for Mr. Rogers, for, for Fred Rogers than this little boy named Jeff. And then they sang this song. It's you I like. It's you I like. It's not the things you wear, it's not the way you do your hair, but it's you I like, the way you are right now. The way deep down inside. Not the things that hide you, not your toys, they're just beside you, but it's You I like. It's every part of you. Your skin, your eyes, your feelings. Whether old or new, I hope that you'll remember, even when you're feeling blue, that it's you I like. It's you yourself. It's you. It's you I like. You know, that boy probably never heard that from a complete stranger before. Frankly, as a viewer, it was kind of hard to watch that boy as he slumped in his wheelchair and, 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 and just the empathy that you have for the struggle that he went through and for those few seconds that boy heard something that I think was quite unique and frankly uh, and, and I'm not comparing Mr. Rogers obviously to the Lord Jesus Christ but I think that's how God thinks of each of us it's you I like just the way you are the way I made you not in your sin, not with all your baggage, but, but it's you that I like. You're so valuable and so special to me. That's the point here, folks. The Pharisees may grumble and complain and dismiss the sinners. And make no mistake about it, the Pharisees would have looked at Jeff, the little boy in the wheelchair... So they wouldn't have had those at the time, right? And they would have said, he must have sinned or his parents must have sinned because that is what happens to sinners, but not us. Jesus, how could you kind of be around those kind of people who are physically so it's evident, so physically evident that they're sinning and sinners, not like us? God says, no way. But the value of one soul And so for us, we have hopefully a a reminder to, to go out and not despise the small things. And as our pastors tell us, to pray for one, to witness to one, to win one to the Lord Jesus Christ, and then to begin for one life, poor life, discipling one. The value is all in the one soul. So there's tremendous cost. There's tremendous value. And there's tremendous debt. And true disciples have God as their master because they realize that they're indebted to him. And that is the next parable, chapter 16. Now he was also saying to his disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him, Squandering his possessions, and he called him and said to him, "What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, for you can no longer be manager." The manager said to him, "What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm not. I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do." so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to them, "Uh, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. So he reduced it into half. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. So he reduced it by 20%. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly, prudently. For the the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in very little things is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore... There's another therefore. Here's the point. If you have not been faithful in the use of right, unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of, what, of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will love the one or hate the other, or hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth, Now, the Pharisees who were lovers of money, remember, they're listening in, who were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, you are, uh, Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God had been preached. And everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Wow. There's a lot there. You may say, well, what? How is that all connected? Well, I'm going to hopefully do justice to that according to the text. And what I'd like us to first see is that money is a means to an end. There's a lot of things that this parable uh, says and doesn't say. And really the main point is not about money, but the, but the point uh, is used, the, the illustration of money is used. And so uh, it's illustrated by the figures. The oil debt is, is equivalent to almost three years' worth of salary. The wheat debt here is perhaps up to one year's worth of salary. It might, by some figures, be up to eight to ten years of someone's salary. So there's, there's depending on the figures that you use, you, you can see that there's a, a tremendous amount of debt that is considered here. And the point is, these were large figures, and the manager used it to his advantage. He was prudent about it. He realized that he was going to be dismissed by the rich man the manager's owner, if you will. And why does the rich, man, the rich man commend the manager? I mean, that's one of the questions that we have in this parable. And I don't know if I have a satisfactory answer for you, because I don't know if that's really quite the point. We could say perhaps it helped the rich man somehow. It collected uh, the debts. Well, he wasn't going to get full price for him, but he was able to get and negotiate some of the price. Perhaps some of that full debt was interest. And so it still put the, man, the rich man into a, uh, a, a net gain position. Uh, perhaps, perhaps it made the rich man seem generous in the sight of those, but that doesn't seem really helpful. I mean, it was the manager, after all, who did all this, not the rich man. The, the point is not why the rich man considers the manager prudent. The point is that the manager does something smart. He does something Worthwhile, he does something to his own benefit for himself using his situation, using money. So I think the point of this passage, this parable, is very simple. How do you use the resources that God's given to you? I don't think God's asking us to do anything illegal or unethical. Certainly not. And I'm not necessarily saying that Jesus is even commending the manager, but Jesus is proving a point. And we see that because Jesus says, if you are faithful in little things, you're going to be faithful in so much more. And so the way you use money reveals your master. The Pharisees are lovers of money. That's true, right? Jesus, Luke tells us that there in verse 14. They're lovers of money. And Jesus says in verse 15, that is detestable in the sight of God. They're condemned by God's law in verses 16 and 17. And then in verse 18, they're compared to unfaithful husbands and wives, to adultery. And we could cross-reference, that's not the first time that God's people, Israel, had been uh, compared to uh, unfaithful harlots, in verse uh, 18, um, we could go back and look at Ezekiel chapter 16 for maybe one of the most graphic realities of how God thinks of those who cheat on Him, and and so uh, this parable has a lot in it, and I don't think I'm going to use this parable in my. Uh, in my defense of marriage, because I don't think marriage is the big point. I don't think divorce is the big point here. Okay. And, and frankly, I don't, I didn't read anybody that kind of agrees with me. So I'm just going to kind of put that up there right now. I don't, I don't think we learn, uh, necessarily about uh, marriage and about divorce from this parable. I think the point is, is that the Pharisees are unfaithful and they've broken their covenant and they've broken the law. And they've broken their relationship with God. And so uh, I think that's more the point here. Um, Certainly uh, it rings true uh, in the context. And so Jesus' exhortation is thus not about money per se, but about what disciples do with money. What do they do with money? And I have uh, this here in my pocket. You probably can't see that, but that's, A one dollar bill, right? That's what I had in my wallet. And you know what's really interesting about this one dollar bill and about the coins that we carry is on one side it says, on this side, it says what? In God we trust. It says in God we trust. The Pharisees were willing to trust in stuff like this. Not in in God we trust. And it's interesting, I don't know the history behind why it says in God we trust here but I wonder if someone read this parable that was a believer and said you know what it's really easy for mankind for humanity to trust in this stuff to trust in things that we think are going to deliver us from the evils of this world so why don't we go ahead and put in God we trust on it just to remind us that it's not This that does a thing for the soul in eternity. It's an innate quality for us to put our trust in wealth. But Jesus' point is you can only trust in one. You can only serve God or serve money. You cannot serve both. So, who's your master? The cost, the value, the debt... Who's your master? And now the dividends. The true disciple share. The true disciple shares in eternal rewards. He shares in eternal rewards, and it really does kind of fit in uh, as we go on with the rich man and Lazarus. And so this is kind of the point of trying to tackle all these parables in, in one sitting, is because you can see how the the logic of Jesus's. Uh, Uh, parables really is, is kind of bringing out the point of what he's trying to get across now there was a rich man one who trusted in this and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen joyously living in splendor every day and a poor man named lazarus was at was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from rich from the rich man's table Uh, "'Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. "'Now the poor man died and was carried away "'by the angels to Abraham's bosom, "'and the rich man also died and was buried. "'And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, "'and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. "'And he cried out and said, "'Father Abraham, have mercy on me, "'and send Lazarus so that he may dip "'the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, "'for I am in agony in this flame. "'But Abraham said, "'Child, remember that during your life "'you received good things, "'and likewise Lazarus, bad things.'" But now he is being comforted here, and you, agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone raises from the dead. This is kind of a nod back to the value of one soul, isn't it? This parable is the only parable of Jesus where a character is named. There's a rich man who's not the most important character, and then there's Lazarus. The only character named in Jesus' parables. So, the identity of one soul. One soul. The measure of his life and the next, uh, the measure of this life and the next are not the same, right? I mean, we see that in verse 19, right? Uh, He was joyously living, the rich man was. But the poor man was covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs of the rich man's table. Right? But then we see the reversal In Hades, he lifted up his eyes. That's the rich man being in torment and saw Abraham far away in Lazarus's uh, in, in Abraham's bosom. All right. And so we see Lazarus comforted now and the rich man. So there's a significant reversal. And what's the point? Now, we can get into Abraham's bosom and, and, and the divide. And, and there was a psalm, oh, probably towards the beginning of the year, where I actually went into a little bit more detail on this passage, believe it or not, preaching through a psalm. But, um, but we're not going to do that today because we have to, to continue and move on. But what we're really talking about here is what you trust in, you are going to reap. And so, so true disciples share in eternal reward where those who trust in this stuff are going to share in an unhealthy, certainly, <laughs> a, a, a dismal, a tormenting, eternal reward or punishment. So the measures of this life and the next are not the same. Joyously living, we saw that. The method to obtain eternal life is singular and it is sufficient. In other words, uh, it's interesting that the rich man says, hey... Uh, can you send uh, the guy who wasn't worth a whole lot in that life to go do my bidding again? Go send him to uh, give me water. Go send him to warn my brothers. The rich man still doesn't get it. That man's valuable. He still doesn't get it. He wants to be served unto. And <laughs> what's the point? What's the point? The point is, as the rich man articulates these things, he doesn't understand that he had Moses and the prophets. He had the word, and the word was enough, and the word was sufficient. And no matter who, what kind of, quote, quote, ghost comes back from the dead, there is no repentance for those who will not submit to Moses and the prophets. There is no repentance for those who will not place their faith in the revealed word of God. Hebrews 11 makes this point just outstanding for us. that There are so many Old Testament figures that are saved via the proper understanding of the law and the prophets because they pointed ultimately unto a necessary faith in the coming Messiah. And so the dividends our true disciples share in eternal rewards. And last but not least tonight, the duty, the duty. True disciples live a faith-defined life. We're going to see that in chapters uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. So I'm going to read this, make a few comments, and then we'll be done. He said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry t- tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would, be, it would obey you. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in, the, in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did these things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all these things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. There it is, verse 10. The duty of the Christian discipleship. True disciples live a life Defined by faith. They live a life defined by faith. And this prohibits some aspects of our life, doesn't it? Verses 1 through 4, really. It's a prohibi- uh, prohibition. Do not cause others to sin. You know that millstone that is hung around the neck of someone who does that? That was a massive stone b- disc that, that had to be pulled turned by beasts of burden and that would crush and pulverize the grain. One man said it's a harsh death would be a better deal. A harsh death would be a better deal than to cause someone to sin. To sin against Christians is to sin against Christ. Paul says that in the epistles in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. And so we don't want to cause someone to sin we don't want to be a stumbling block in the ability for them to be for them to enjoy forgiveness and by the way this is all in really the context i think now obviously this is before the church is is inaugurated but i think i think the uh the the concept really is in the christian community You, you see that here in this parable Verse 2, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than, than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. And you know what's really particular or interesting about this term little ones? It's not really the term that would be used to describe children. Like children, children. It, it doesn't exclude them but it's not really forceful to them. It really has everything to do with uh, uh, more of a parental care but not necessarily a a little child, okay? So it could include adult children as well. And so the point is not necessarily we better be careful how we treat the little ones, so that certainly is true. The point is we better be careful how we treat every single child of God, adult or infant, and everyone in between. You understand what I mean by infant, I think, hopefully. So uh, we've got to be careful to treat the community of God uh, with the utmost respect. And the apostles say, ah, how am I going to do that? Give us faith. Right? Verse 5. Remember that funnel. All the way from the crowd. All the way from disciple. All the way to apostle. The apostles are begging for faith. And this puts into the context this whole, you know, if you have enough faith, you, you can uh, move a, a, a tree or move a mountain and other synoptics. Right? Jesus isn't saying that we need more faith and we can actually do miraculous things today. What he's saying all right, is that it is incredibly important for us to be true and, and, and to be faithful. And so while we might have a flawed community, we don't have a false community of believers this church is not perfect. It's not going to be. If you're looking for it, you better leave because it's not going to be here. Right? But Jesus' point is that while we might have a flawed community, little faith, we're not going to have a false community. We need faith. We need faith. And it's a hyperbolic statement. Right? Right? It's not a matter of how much faith, but that we employ the faith that we have. It's not the bigness of our faith or the smallness of the faith, but the fact that we're acting on faith to relate rightly to each other, to not cause each other to sin, and to have faith to forgive when forgiveness is necessary. Even the faith the size of a mustard seed, which has been uh, come up in another parable here in Luke chapter 13. And so the mulberry tree was known for its tremendous root system. It had such a root system that it had uh, a 500-year lifespan. And because of its root system, the Mishnah prescribed that it could not be planted within 75 feet of an in-ground cistern or well. Right? So you don't plant these things by your house. They, they end up breaking your foundation. And, and that's the point. The point is is that we've we've got to have enough faith to treat people rightly. You can't do it without Jesus Christ changing your heart and giving you the gift of faith. And that's what the apostles are confessing. Increase our faith. And a a life defined by faith is a life that, frankly, is just going to obey. That's the end here. Verses 8 and 9. All right? Verse 10 sums it up. We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. That ought to be our duty. That ought to be our rallying cry. Our purpose is the point that we are faithful Christians that obey and do. And so... Bringing all these parables together, it's helpful to see the funnel from the Pharisees who claim to know what true love is as they discuss matters around the banquet table with Jesus on the Sabbath to the crowds following curiously after Jesus, to Jesus' disciples and the costs involved following him, to the apostles who are tasked with exemplifying the Christian community. The question forms from the pictures drawn in these parables of Jesus, who is truly a follower of Jesus, That's really the question that Jesus is seeking to answer. And if you are a true disciple, you are willing to pay the cost to value one soul, to submit to God as master, to look forward to eternal rewards while you live a faith-defined life. So we have a whole picture that Jesus is trying to communicate from the crowds, to the Pharisees, to the disciples, to the apostles, exactly what does true followers of Jesus look like? What do they look like? And they look like people that embrace these five characteristics. So this is the economics of Jesus Christ. Father, please help us. Help us to be men and ladies that truly follow, truly love, Give us faith, give us faith to obey in Jesus' name, amen.